Hello, everyone. This is Eric Pennington, and welcome to the Spirit of EQ podcast. We're glad that you've tuned in. A few things we wanted to tell you at the beginning of the show, and that's this podcast was created to be a tool to help you, primarily to discover and grow your EQ. Science and our own lived experiences confirm that the better we are at managing our emotions, the better we're going to be at making decisions, which leads to a better life. And that's something we all want. We're glad that you've taken out the time today to listen and hope that something that you hear will lead to a breakthrough. Hey, one last thing. We'd really appreciate a review on whichever platform you use to listen. And if you want to, leave some comments about what you heard today, as well as follow and subscribe. That way you won't miss a single episode as we continue this journey. And with that, the show begins. Joining us on the Spirit of EQ podcast today is Shannon Lee. Shannon is the executive director of Leadership Columbus. She's a coach. She's an author. She's a leader. And we are super excited that she's on the show today. So Shannon, welcome. Thank you, Eric. I'm so glad to be here. I appreciate you having me. You know, um, as I do with many of our guests, I I, I start thinking, you know, okay, wow, I want to ask her this, I want to ask her that, or those kind of things. But it's interesting because you may have heard this and read about it. Maybe you're even discussing it in some of the places and where you interact is about where in the world are we going with this thing that we call or used to call the workplace. <laughs> and, <laughs> I'm not going to say, Shannon, oh, do you have the answer to fix all of the, the both sides of the equation? But it is having an impact on people, right? I mean, it is one of those things where there's a lot of talk on both sides of the equation. So, okay, two-part type question. How do you feel about the current state of work and where it might be heading? Well, you know, I feel kind of two ways, a little dichotomy here. Um, I'm very hopeful on one side. Mm -hmm. I'll share why. Um, But I also have concerns. Um, I'm hopeful because I've seen a lot of advancements made in the workplace around critical parts of work that create more belonging in the workplace. Um, I know that there've been lots of both national and worldwide studies done around this thing we call belonging. And that from an emotional intelligence standpoint, a lot of, a lot of that research tells us that it's probably like the single most common um, thing that people experience or the lack of that um, are experiencing in their lives is this lack of belonging. And so I believe that workplaces have made a lot of advancements in that arena specifically because they've done more work around DEI, around anti-racism and around equity in the workplace. And we, mm-hmm. we've seen a wave of that. And unfortunately, much of it was catalyzed by the murder of George Floyd. The reason why I say unfortunately is because it shouldn't have to take um, something as egregious as that for us to say, hey, everybody is valuable in the workplace. Everybody, you know what I mean? Like it, it just, it's almost disgusting when you think about it from that perspective. Mm-hmm. Nonetheless, here we are. And I we have seen a lot of um, improvements in that area. I'm hopeful because there's also a lot of up and coming leaders. There's new leaders and those who are getting ready for leadership who are embracing um, this people first leadership concept. And you could call it lots of different things. I've heard it called servant leadership. I've heard it called people first. Um, I've heard it called so many different things, but the bottom line is, is there's more people who are just innately embracing this idea that people are more important than profit. And they also believe that when you put people first, that profit actually doesn't suffer, that it actually improves our ROI. And what I'm most excited about along those lines is you have a group of people who understand that the benefit of investing into human capital, the benefit of investing into DEI and anti-racism, yes, it positively impacts our bottom line in businesses. Mm -hmm. But this new influx of leaders understand that that is not why it is a good idea. 
Because if that's the only reason why it's a good idea, then what we've done is we've made DEI, for example, a commodity. So what happens then if having diversity and inclusion and belonging in the workplace somehow doesn't mean we're more profitable? Does that mean now we're not going to value people anymore who right. maybe don't look like dominant culture, who mm -hmm. don't look like white cisgendered individuals? I just think that there's a new wave of leaders coming that embrace that the reason why this is so important is because of the dignity of human beings, period, hard stop. Yeah, It happens currently to be good for the bottom line, that that ends up being an outcome, not the goal. And so that makes me really hopeful that there's more and more people. And we see this in our programs that as we, and I don't want to necessarily say younger folks, what I'm really referring to when I say early in the career would be, you know, whether or not they've had college is irrelevant. But what I'm saying is they are really kind of taking on that first management experience and they have an opportunity to really influence others um, in a real way in the workplace. Those are the folks I'm talking about. It just so happens a lot of them tend to be younger. That's not to say that there aren't folks that have been at this for a while, a little longer in the tooth like you and I, um, that also embrace these things because I do see that too. So I'm not right. trying to pick on a certain um, experience level or age group, but yeah. by far and large, I'm seeing that as a good thing. The concern that I have, though, on the flip side of that yep. is that we are still seeing trends, um, however, that senior DEI roles are held primarily by white cisgendered women mm. and that these roles and sometimes entire departments are the first ones or one of the first to be eliminated when there are budget cuts. And so what this tells me, and I'm making a conclusion here, and I understand that my conclusion may not be fact or it may not be fact all the time. So I'm acknowledging that. Sure. But what the impact of this, what this either intentionally or unintentionally communicates is that decision makers still see this work of diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging as yep. a nice to have, that it's not critical, mm. which to me is a devaluing of human beings. and. Again, you still have arguably tens, if not hundreds of thousands of decision makers in this country and worldwide. And some of that, you know, Eric, they have a legal obligation to shareholders to create profitability, et cetera. And so I'm not making excuses and saying that makes it okay. But until right. that system changes, mm -hmm. it's going to be hard for what I'm talking about to change. Because if you're the CEO of a company that is bound legally to create certain types of profits for your company, then what cuts are you going to make in order to keep that profitability going? And what are you prioritizing? Those yeah. are not always easy decisions to make. And for some of these organizations, because they finally got their first DEI professional, because they finally got their first DEI department, it's like the first to go. Yeah. Um, we're seeing this happening um, in our local community, organizations that once had this whole, you know, um, department going and now they've had to cut back and, and those folks don't have jobs anymore. And so that's a little bit discouraging to me. And it gives me pause and concern because what message does that send to folks who work for us that are in the LGBT community, that are Black, Indigenous and other people of color, that um, are folks that simply just don't look like us, folks who are disabled. That's mm -hmm. where the concern comes from for me. So back to your question, uh, I think there's a lot of good happening, but I think there are pockets of concern that 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 are kind of drawing my attention. With yeah. all of that being said, I do understand and embrace this idea that change is not linear. So we're not always up and to the right, correct? Yep. Mm -hmm. So we've made some improvements in DEI. It's not okay. Like I'm not excusing it, but there are going to be uh, folks that pull back from that. And then I think there's going to be another rise and then it's going to drop a little bit and then rise some more. And hopefully every time we make improvements, we're um, getting further than we did before. So Shannon, uh, to that point, could it be that there's this, uh, this game of, um, the better team wins because of their investment in something that maybe the others didn't see value in or or couldn't sustain the value. And, and, I, and I don't want to overuse sports analogies, but, you know, when you look at high performing professional sports teams, 
there always seems to be those few that stand out who year after year over time have built something that continues to um, continues to grow, continues to quote win. And I know I, I got to be careful because I don't want to make it sound like it, this is all about a competition. I'm, yeah. I'm speaking to it from the perspective that the better run organizations understand some things that the maybe not so well run organizations don't. Now, <clears throat> As I say that, I get it. Well, does that mean the people who work for the not well-run organizations? Well, sorry about your luck, right? <laughs> it's it's not that at all because I know it in the end, and I and I think you share this with me. Um, the first responsibility and leadership is that you lead yourself well, yes. right? Uh, whether that's managing your spiritual, mental, physical, and emotional health, whether it's your relationships, that's start one. So I. I I have a level of optimism that even if you are in an organization that maybe is not as well run, um, your opportunities don't are not tied to whether or not the organization is quote doing the things that we that you just described. Um, so, do you think that is part of the deal? I mean, that we'll find that there'll be those organizations that are just a, a notch or two above just because they're 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 better run, or or what do you think about that? So there actually have been studies done specific to servant leadership. I'm sure maybe other leadership styles, and I'm not going to be able to quote it directly because I wasn't thinking about this particular study, but I have shared it before in training sessions. Right. That there actually is research around um, certain like leadership styles and how they permeate through organizations and how that actually creates an ROI for the organization long term. Yeah. And so because of that, I have to believe. I would have to say yes to answer your question. Like, I definitely think that there is a rate of return on that, both from a financial standpoint and like people management, you know, mm -hmm. less turnover means we keep more of our profits. I, I was just in a training the other day with um, Franklin County Public Health mm -hmm. and their uh, talent leader was telling me that currently the current statistics around the cost of turnover, it used to be roughly 30 to 50% of the salary. Now they're saying in the current um, hiring environment that you could spend upwards of 100 to 150% oh. of person's salary to try to replace them between training time, you know, getting hired, um, going through all that process, the time it takes internally to, um, to craft that position, whatever it is, like it's costing companies so much money. So all of these things put together, like if we just want to talk about the bottom line, it is better bottom line wise to put people first and specifically, and I mentioned servant leadership because that's, I'm a fan of servant leadership, but also because servant leadership is sort of historically like the original put people first kind of way of yeah. leading. And yeah. it really, and servant leadership really turns traditional leadership kind of uh, upside down, right? It's mm -hmm. this idea that that um, believing in the win-win um, as we work with people. And so yeah. I do think those organizations, either they know something that organizations, other organizations don't know and or they're just big enough that they can experiment and get those things figured out, whereas maybe smaller companies don't have the bandwidth to do that. I don't know. Yeah. The other thing that it makes me wonder, especially as you talk about like the inner work, and I 100% believe that, the, what you were saying about we've got to do the work ourselves, we've got to lead ourselves first. Yeah. Um, I think the organizations that are doing it well have someone at that senior role who values things. And they are not getting rid of their DEI leader. They are not getting rid of their DEI department because they see it as a crucial part of what they do, right? Mm -hmm. But, and so they are, if you think about it, like, um, I'm going to make a point here, but it might take me a minute to get there. If you think about horses running in a race, right? And they've got blinders on, those blinders are there on purpose, right? So they don't go right or left. We want them to have tunnel vision, so to speak. Yep. When it comes to leadership, tunnel vision is super dangerous. So if you believe that you cannot make the necessary cuts you need to make unless you get rid of um, DEI or you get rid of um, learning and development opportunities or you get rid of and you, and you view them as only a certain thing, like a nice to have, you will not, like blinders, you will not find the other opportunities to make your budget. Yeah. Now, I understand 
revenue coming into companies is is on many levels finite, right? There's not, um, I believe there's a lot more money in the world than people realize, but um, <laughs> yes, <laughs> I think they play that card. Oh, uh, we don't have the money when when that's not necessarily true. However, I digress from that. That's something I keep. <laughs> You're um, allowed. But I think the process and the practice of really thinking of all of the ways yeah. that we can serve people and our stakeholders and trying to expand that circle as wide as we can is a totally different mindset than, well, we just have to make cuts. Like yep. one is with blinders on, missing opportunities, and the other one is seeing the whole picture. Those are the greatest companies. Those are the greatest leaders, and they have the happiest workplaces. I, I would almost guarantee that because when you're thinking about all the opportunities there are for the people that work for you and for your organization and all the ways we can make money, save money, hold on to people, you are thinking differently than when you're thinking about just the bottom line. Mm -hmm. And it makes I all the totally difference. agree. And Shannon, um, you know, this brings to my mind is what's happening in the business schools and what's being taught there as it relates to because there's the, inevitably, I think there's been this. Um, oh, gosh, the, the words to come to my mind here, but the idea of uh, a collision course. Right. Um. And though I haven't studied and researched all of the uh, all of the subject matter being taught in business schools, um, I've gotten a sense enough to where I feel confident saying there's much work to be done on that inner work, and there's much work to be done on people, because I think the emphasis. And I truly understand it, the way that our system is set up. If you're a publicly traded company, first priority, you know, shareholder value. Second priority, profitability. <laughs> I mean, fill in the blank. We've, we've heard it to nausea, right? So in my mind, when tough times come, not if they come, but when they come, if you are a leader that has been trained, if not, and this is just my view, right, programmed, to believe that in the end, when you are faced with a challenge, when there's a tough time, what you first do is we need to cut because we have quarterly numbers to report, we have shareholder value, we have stock price, all of the above. And someone could say, but Eric, that's the way, what are you arguing that they just unwind all of that? And well, yeah, the four on the Enneagram. A little right? bit. <laughs> yeah, right? Uh, yeah. And if I, I'm I honest. Agree. Right now, I, I and I know, Shannon, I mean, I'm a risk taker. I'm the dreamer, the visionary type of person. My personality is geared toward that. So it might be easier for me to advocate that. Yeah. But in the end, if it's a cul-de-sac and it's going to lead you back to the same place, what good is that exercise? Mm -hmm. and, if the, and if the idea is we're just going to go ahead and keep doing, because I'll look at this. Uh, rabbit hole alert here for you. <laughs> I, I look at our Federal Reserve and the the, the consistent, uh, you know, the interest rates thing, right? As far as continually raising interest rates, and they're talking about we've got to nail down inflation, we've got to defeat inflation. It's not done yet. We got to keep going. And I'm, and this is, I look at them, and Jerome Powell being the the head of the Federal Reserve, he's older, and I'm not typecasting older people here because quite frankly, I'm not far away. Right. <laughs> but it's like, I wonder to myself is like, have you guys thought about that? Maybe you're encountering something that you've never seen before. Are you thinking about maybe you now have problems that solutions from 20 years ago are not going to solve. And That's at what so point, important. right. And at what point do you say, you know what, Shannon, it did work 10 years ago, but five things have fundamentally changed. We need to come up with a new way. I think that's where you find out the quality of the leadership, right? Because then it's, well, maybe the decision is we can't cut the DEI department. 
we're, we're not going to do that. We have to explore other ways to make up a gap, fill up the, the, the whatever. But I think that that one really leaps out to me because I've said this many times, you know, the pandemic was like the proverbial global pulling out the rug from underneath every human being. And its byproduct was it created pr new problems that we haven't seen before and we, we haven't had to struggle with. And, and I know as we began this particular question about the, the state of the workplace and all the rest, I'm sure you've heard the, the different arguments. I, I don't want to go into the work. I don't want to go into the office. Well, I need everybody back to the office. No, I want to work hybrid. No, I can't afford childcare anymore because it's been, you know, it went up 20%. And that argument that, you know, now I look at that and go, there's great opportunity here. If the parties are really thinking about what could we do? And Shannon, you know, the business that we're in and you've heard us say it, emotions drive people. That's where I think there's got to be that laser beginning foundational look to kind of what's going on. You know, if I'm a leader in a in a company and I'm saying everybody's got to be back to the office, that's what we're doing. Am I taking the time to go, well, what's behind your decision? What's driving that for you, Eric? Is it fear? Is it frustration? What's behind that? Are you afraid that people aren't going to be as productive? Are you afraid that someone might do something that you're not going to be able to control? What's behind that, right? And I guess I'm saying all that to say we're in a different place now. Yeah. So to take the age-old idea that, oh, look, we, our revenue is down. Okay, let's cut the DEI department. Oh, revenue is down. Okay, no, we're not going to offer that wellness program anymore. When you know it's a fundamental, you know it's important, it, it, it's vitally important. So I'm going to pivot back to what you said about belonging. And I think that's a very key thing. Um, I read an article not long ago about the difference between fitting in and belonging. Mm -hmm. And it was really, really well done, Shannon, in as much as that if you're in a place where you have to fit in, there's a problem. Because fitting in says, oh, Shannon won't like me if I wear my hair this way, so I'm going to cut my hair. Oh, Shannon's not going to appreciate my opinion because she values those that typically agree with her. So what I'll do is I'll just say, in order for you to let me into the world that you've created as Shannon, the CEO, or Shannon, the chief operating officer, whatever, this author, this writer said, belonging means who you are is welcome. Who and you are as you are. Mm -hmm. As you are. Yeah. So when you think about belonging, can you maybe just for our audience, what does that look like for you when you say that? What, what do you think that means in, in its most positive way? Well, I, I recently did a, um, I hold quarterly round tables that are just online spaces where we talk about a topic. And I recently did one on belonging mm -hmm. in the workplace and talked about things that leaders could do to create more belonging. And it shocked me. But one of the most interesting pieces of feedback was when someone reacted to a statement I made, which I said was belonging is more, creating belonging is a lot more than just being nice to people. Right. And I got so many reactions to that all good, but they were reactions like I never thought about it like that. And I think that that's one of the key things that's missing is we hear a lot of these things that then they become buzzwords. And when something becomes a buzzword, then you miss like, the full definition or the, the full intention of what we're talking about when we talk about these things. Yeah. And so for some folks on that, um, in that online space, when we were talking about belonging, before we had this conversation, they were thinking, well, I'm nice to everybody on my team. I invite everybody to lunch for our team meetings. Everyone is included in all this stuff. And they think about, they don't really think about the difference between um, inclusion, belonging, et cetera. And I love what you said about fitting in. Cause when I think of fitting in, I think of what do I need to do to change in order to fit this space? Yep. Um, it also brings up a notion of, and maybe this is maybe because I'm a woman, I think of it this way, but I think about like fitting into a pair of jeans, like how can I squeeze into these or something like it, it right. puts all the responsibility on the person 
uh, coming into the space, whereas belonging is something that I believe is part of the culture that leadership needs to be creating in workplaces. And it's not just about being nice to people. Like, I hope you're nice to people. I hope you're kind to people. And I hope it's genuine. And yet, individual after individual tell me, I've worked in a place, everyone was nice to me, but I didn't feel like I belonged. So that just goes to show you that like being nice, like being polite to people to me is the bare minimum. You should be polite to folks that work for you and that work with you, right? That doesn't make them feel like they belong. And so one of the key factors, um, in my opinion, for creating that belonging is as decisions, uh, like it's not about having a pizza party or an ice cream social, and those are nice, okay? Those are nice frills, whatever. But if you want to really create belonging, think about things like when I make decisions, when I create new policies, when I assign work, who is it impacting and how might it impact them? And if I don't know, I need them in the room to have that discussion. Yeah. And then when they're in the room, I need to value their input and amplify their voice, especially if they are a part of a historically marginalized group. It becomes even more important to do that. It makes me think about a time long, long ago in a galaxy far, far away. And <laughs> I was in the land of corporate America. And I've used this story before in uh, a previous episode. I was the probably the only person of color in an executive management team. And there were uh, a couple, maybe three women, and then I was the only person of color. And all of the people in that team were, they were, they were nice, smile, shake your hand, you know, uh, invite you to different things, have coffee or whatever. But what was interesting, I remember one of the first meetings, I walk in that room, And it just hit me. Wow. I don't see anyone that I could just from a visual standpoint, you know, kind of connect with, you know, just at a at a basic level. And quite frankly, I hadn't been there very long. So I was nervous, too. I mean, it was quite frankly, it was the biggest job I'd ever uh, had. Right. And as I look back on that. I don't feel like I belong. And, and it's not because they did anything that was a crossing of a line or, or, or whatever. It was that it was if, well, why do we need to say anything or to ask anything? Why, why do we need to be curious or reflective? I think back now and I go, man, wouldn't it have been cool? And, and I'm not judging here, Shannon. I mean, it's not my, my I'm not looking back on that and saying those people were wrong, right? But if you wanted me to feel belong, a, a sense of belonging, man, wouldn't it have been cool if somebody would have said, hey, I know this is this is your first meeting here. I just want to let you know, I'm glad you're here. And, you know, if there's anything that I can do to help you feel like, hey, this is this is going to be a great place to work. Let me know. For sure. Shannon, would I have gone home and told my wife and just did jumping jacks and cartwheels? No. But it would have given me that calmness of assurance, like, okay, all right. And maybe a week later, maybe my boss says, hey, I understand potentially that this might be, would you like to go to coffee sometime? Because I want to hear your story. Yeah. Now that never happened. But I think, again, that differentiator of the leader that says, I see you. I see you, Shannon. I'm interested in your story. I see you, Eric. I see you, Joe. I see you, Susan, whoever it may be. I think that's one of the ways in which we kind of plant that seed and and potentially birth this thing where people say, yeah, this is is a place where I feel like I belong. So I wanted to share that story. I don't know your thoughts and does it resonate at all. That makes sense. And I'll, and I'll draw the listeners to a specific report. You, You can Google it. It's a PDF you can download. It's called the Better Up belonging report. Um, I'm just looking at the title right now, make sure I get it right. Um, and Shannon, uh, once you have that, um, I will make sure we get that in the show notes. Okay, perfect. It's, called, it's by Better Up is the organization. It's called the value of belonging at work. And we we provided this to the attendees of that roundtable that I mentioned. And then mm-hmm. we discussed the salient points, which is 
it covers, there's a lot in that report, but it talks about really three phases um, of belonging. And what's interesting, because um, you and I've already talked a couple of times today about like that in that inner work to outer work, it's kind of thinking along those same lines, which is number one is the value of belonging. So educating folks on um, like the value of creating belonging in the workplace and quantifying that value and in turn, um, then moving to phase two, which is quantifying the cost of exclusion. So the, the article or the report points out a lot of really helpful things um, around how like DEI efforts alone, and this is part of why the study was created because people are like, great, we have all these DEI efforts. Why do people still not feel like they belong at work? We thought this is all we needed to do. Right. And, um, and I'm not trying to be um, snarky here, However, some of what I see in this space, especially when you have white folks in charge of DEI um, or white folks experiencing DEI, it's like, come on, isn't this enough? And I think that that attitude is, well, first of all, it's very damaging, but also it ignores the fact that we don't know these things and we need to learn these things. Like as a society, we need to understand the value of belonging and the cost of exclusion. What, what does it cost us, not just in direct costs, like the bottom line, but what does it cost to, um, like it, when you witness an immediate consequence of exclusion, what does that look like? What yeah. are the casualties of that? So that's phase two. And then phase three is then when they talk about what they call novel interventions. And that will be different for um, every company. And then of course there's research that has identified specific approaches to creating um, and targeting the issue of um, belonging. It does say that there are no studies that have focused specifically on a workplace team context. So they began that phase of their experiment to help figure out like what would be some interventions that organizations can use. And so you can read about that. I'll send you the the, uh, the white paper and oh, you can please. distribute it if you'd like. But it was it's so useful because these are concepts, you know, I, I'm not gonna date myself and give a year, but I've been working for a long time and I'm telling you what, one of the most predominant attitudes that I hear today from people in my generation, I'm Gen X, I'll give you that much, um, <laughs> is, well, I didn't need any of that. Oh, yes. You know, that Gen sounds X, very Gen X-y. <laughs> yes, we're, we're very much pull yourself up by the bootstraps. We were the latchkey kids. We were the ones that had to play out. We weren't allowed to come inside until dinner time. And so while that gave my generation, and of course, for the listeners, these are broad generalizations. Hopefully yes. everyone's mature enough to understand it doesn't mean every single person, you could be the exception. Um, but broadly speaking, my generation was raised with this idea that you take care of yourself, highly individualistic. Yep. Highly individualistic. And that it's a double-edged sword because how that serves me is is it's helped me achieve. It's helped me to be independent. It's helped me to figure out how to take care of myself. And all those things are great qualities. The downside of that, the downside of that is I have had to learn as an adult how to be in community with people. How do I create belonging in my workplace? You know, we're a small staff, so it might be simpler because there's not as many, uh, there's not as much complexity with a staff of five or six people as there's with thousands of people. Yep. However, I still had to learn how to be in community with people in a way that's generative in order to create a sense of belonging in our workplace. And some of that, I mean, we could, I know that's not our topic for today, but some of that comes from the, um, the impact of white supremacy on our culture. And so because of that, we have to unlearn and unravel those things. One of the things we created in our organization are, um, she's no longer with us. Uh, she's with us physically. I mean, she doesn't work for our organization anymore. <laughs> you gotta be careful how you say those things. Um, uh, Karen, she created for the organization something that we use all the time now and she coined the phrase, um, a culture of interrogation. And in order to get to belonging, you have to, you have to interrogate all the systems from policies to programs of how you are, of what you're doing that might be unintentionally preventing belonging. So you have to address those systemic issues that prevent that before you can create those novel interventions, because all that you're doing then is, um, I'm trying to think of a euphemism that isn't crude. Um, 
we do allow a little bit of crudeness on the Spirit of EQ podcast, Shannon. If so. you don't get rid of the stuff that's not working first, that's that's hurting belonging, it's like you're polishing a turd. <laughs> you're, <laughs> All you're, right. You're basically, you're basically trying to put something pretty over something that is that is rotten. And so first we've got to get rid of the rot so that then we can put in interventions in a fresh space. And it is not hard to do. It just takes commitment and a, and a regular effort in that direction. You don't have to overthink it. You just, it's all Google. Now, nowadays it's like, it's, it's there. And most of yeah. it's for free. Most and you know, what's interesting, Shannon, as you're saying that uh, a wise person once told me that uh, individual transformation first, corporate transformation second, right? And as you were talking about uh, a person who um, who is white and doesn't have an understanding of of these things, um, I, I use this in an episode uh, we recorded recently with Toya Spencer, uh, who is, uh, I mean, just she's just fabulous. Um, and we got to talking about you know, what is, where does that come from? Why, how is it that I could come and look at another human being and go, nah, marginal. Nah, I know them. Especially when we're operating with so very little data to support our decision to think that way. And where did you learn things, that from? Uh, it, it is, it, yeah. you know, it's, it's mind blowing to me that, you know, if I, if I said to you, Hey, Shannon, you need to start a sub-business of Leadership Columbus with me, and it's going to be great. We're going to do great things. We'll produce great revenue. People are going to love what we do. Shannon, you're probably going to say, okay, well, let me see the plan. Let me, let, let's me let let's talk about how we want to structure it. And what if I said to you, no, you know enough. We'll just get started tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You'd laugh, right? I'm not not go. <laughs> right? But Shannon? If I first meet you and I look at you and I go, oh, you're from that group. Okay. Nope. That's not going to work. I don't know. Wait a minute. So, you know, that much and you're making a decision that's that big. Yeah. I, I say that, I mean, that's insanity if I can be so insensitive, right? But the reality of it is, is that we do it all the time. And that leads me to the idea about what our brain normalizes and how we go about mm. questioning what we believe, you know, our, our core beliefs, you know, and, and I get it, Shannon, we live in a society where it feels like we've tossed in the trash can curiosity and reflection. Yeah. I don't want to take any, I mean, in this, it feels like in our age, it's like people are saying, I don't want to spend time being curious. I don't want to spend time being reflective. I've got things to do. I've got places to go. I want to get to this and I want to own that. And uh, But at the same time, we see the road underneath us crumbling. And I, and I get it. If, if you have been programmed to believe that being reflective and being curious is an inconvenience, I know, yeah, that's going to be tough. But my goodness, I, yeah. I, I heard a startling statistic last year that relates to what you're talking about. I'm going to try to find it and send it to you. Yeah. 67% of people never evolve beyond their socialized self. Woo. That's startling. So if you know, and, and that's why that is the answer to the question of why don't people question those things? So I heard a very interesting and startling statistic last year, and I will try to find the source and send it to you. Very simply put, it said 67% of people never evolve beyond their socialized self. So everything that we're socialized into, and remember that, and I'm not saying this for your benefit, because I know you know this, but for the audience, social self, just meaning like, um, the way we think, the way we believe, the way we view the world. It could also include our political leanings, uh, what we think about social issues, how we view people who are different from us, etc. All of those things are fake. None of them are real, that we, we're just socialized to believe a certain thing about all those things. Once you realize that all of that is just made up and we're socialized, in other words, we're taught that by our families, by our life experiences, et cetera, that you can actually choose a different framework for your life. Yeah. 
67% of people do not know that and therefore never evolve past that. Yeah. Which is just explains a lot. Yeah, explains an awful lot. (laughs) Explains a a lot. Um, And and I'm going to take you back into that uh, conversation I had with Toya Spencer. I, I just, I said, you know, this reminds me, Toya, of like Jesus and the woman at the well. Okay, for our audience, you know, from the Bible, the the story, you know, what does Jesus do? He he's a Jewish male. He goes out of his way. He goes into Samaria. Samaria is a place that the Jews, they hate the Samaritans because Mm -hmm. they are of mixed variety, if I could say it like that. Right. But he goes out of his way and he talks to her. Which in general, even if she had been a Jewish woman, that's not good. But he was intentional, right? And though I get it, someone would say, Eric, I'm not Jesus. Eric, I can't rise to that level. Oh, I totally get it. But look at the model that we've been given there. I mean, out of his way. So that kind of makes me think, well, Eric, who have you gone out of your way to learn from, to listen to? to be curious about. And you know what, Shannon, this is the fallacy of those that argue against it. I don't have to agree with you on every single thing, Shannon. I don't have to see the world just like you. You may say it's good. I may say, I don't know. You may say it's bad. I may say, I think it's good. Now, if we're adults, we should be able to end that and be, oh, sure, I'll be there next week for the event. I'm looking forward to it. But our culture has turned into this very dualistic approach. Yeah. You're either this or you're that. It's either good or it's bad. It's right or it's wrong. And I'm not arguing against at some point you having the right to make a judgment about something. But my goodness, don't you think it would be great if you give yourself a little bit more information, a little bit more data before you come to that conclusion? But I'll connect it back to what you said about the socialization. If you have not progressed beyond that, doing what I just described is probably like lifting a thousand pounds. Yeah. And I get that, uh, which, you know, in some ways makes me <laughs> I think about the reason why we do the work of emotional intelligence, uh, because I, I it, it breaks my heart to see people who they don't even realize sometimes that, you know, you're your own worst enemy here. Mm-hmm. It, it, you are the block. You know, all right. So what I'm finding out, Shannon, is, is because you are a, such a great guest is that time is not on my side. So I'm going to move <laughs> next thing I wanted to talk no about because we could we could keep going on this. So I'm going to ask you to look at a broad from a macro level leadership in American culture. Right. And you can go whatever direction inspires you. Right. So what do you think? Do you think that the leadership that we have now is living up to the need of our culture, our society? Or do you feel good about where we're at from a leadership perspective? Uh, I don't. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you said that fast. <laughs> I'll, qualify, I'll qualify that. Um, so much, and again, I'm going to go back to research. You know, Gallup um, is a great resource for finding out like trends in leadership, not yes. only uh, nationwide, but worldwide. Yep. And one of the most interesting things I've seen come out at Gallup in recent years, twofold, two stats that may not be um, uh, can like directly connected, but it will make you wonder if they're correlated. Yes. And so, um, the first one is that the average age someone steps into their first management position, meaning they have they're responsible for at least one other person. They have direct reports. Right, is twenty eight years of age. The average age, those same set of managers actually receive management training. In other words, how to train people. I don't mean how to be how to do the systems at that company, but I mean, how to train, how to actually lead other people. The first time they receive that kind of training is 14 years later when they're 42 years old. And that is 14 years of harm done, unintended for the most part, and also pain for the leader. It doesn't feel good to be that person and feel like you don't know what you're doing. And for the most part, because we work with young uh, or less experienced leaders all the time in one of our programs called NextGen, a common reaction we get from that group, and I know you work with that group too, Eric, a common reaction that we get from that group 
is that they feel like as an early manager, they have to have all the answers. Like all of a sudden, today I wasn't a manager and tomorrow I'm going to be one. Like magically, they have this unconscious belief that they have to have all of the answers. So what happens to our ego and our and, and what's happening on the inside when we think we should have all the answers? When someone comes to us with a question, if we don't have the answer, well, we can't say, I don't know, I'll get back to you. We just do whatever comes to our head. And it might be like the most terrible decision we've ever made, but we're going to stick to it because we got to know what we're doing, right? Yeah. So we don't even realize that now our ego is stepping into the driver's seat and making silly decisions. And then we don't understand why we have no engagement. People don't, you know, don't like us. We're not feeling successful at our job. And so one of the key problems I see there is that companies are promoting folks and they're promoting them, A, for the wrong reasons, but B, they're promoting them without giving them the adequate level of direction and support that they need to be successful as a manager. They're doing it much, much too late. Oftentimes, the reason why they're doing it is because there have been so many complaints about that manager that they're like, oh, now it's triage. Yeah. When, when it could have been preparatory, right? Yeah. <laughs> now we're like, now we've got nurses and doctors involved, right? And so, so I think that that is... Um, my concern about um, the American culture living up to the needs that we have in the workplace is that our culture is not conducive to learning and development. And there's a lot of reasons for that. But I think one of the key reasons is that we don't actually realize as senior leaders that the folks that are coming into leadership um, that are working for us, that they are still learning. So I, I love to use salespeople as an example because it's something everyone can either identify with personally or experientially. Yep. They've been in sales or they've experienced, they've been in workplaces with sales teams. Mm -hmm. what, what happens a lot with pretty much any um, industry, but we'll use sales, is you have um, an individual who is really good at selling the thing. Yeah. Yep. So what do we do with them once they're really good? They're at the top of the leaderboard. They're, they're you know, knocking down all the goals. What do we do? We make yep. them the sales manager or we make them the SVP of sales, right? We, we promote them, promote them. Yep. And all of a sudden, they're terrible at that job. And we don't know why. Well, they, they sold these widgets so well. Why can't they lead other people who are selling those widgets? Why can't they just teach them to do what they did. Yeah. That's because the ability to train and develop others is in and of itself a separate skill set. Yep. And it requires that person to understand the concept of the curse of knowing, which is now that they know how to sell and do it so well that everybody that works for them doesn't, but they treat them like they should. So there's this multifaceted issue that I feel like American companies are failing their people because they're failing to train their leaders and managers and how to be a people leader. And you know what, Shannon, it's interesting that you're saying all that. And this is one of the things that I think gets forgotten, too, is that that 28-year-old who's waiting 14 years, they're creating these neural pathways. Yeah. And those neural pathways are very powerful. Um, and, you know, um, <laughs> I'd love to change. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because you you're 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 basically you're you're moving to a place where you're creating a new neural pathway. And wouldn't it be great if our brain just said, Oh my gosh, that's great. I've been waiting for this. Let's go. Doesn't work that way. Because yeah. and I've used this many times on this podcast, three really strong jobs of your brain protect you make things efficient, make things easy. Change is none of those. No. It, it, I mean, it, it just isn't, right? And I would say to any organization, they need to take your advice. Start early. Do something. Uh, don't, don't think that when it comes time for triage that, oh, that's just another thing we've got to deal with. Um, and and I, I my heart breaks for those in that group who are excited, they're enthusiastic about the opportunity and, and they want to succeed, you know, and then they hit this wall and then it becomes, again, you know, you use the example of the ego taking the driver's seat, you know, this idea that I need to have the answer 
whenever asked. And I'm thinking to myself, if that gets normalized, if that becomes a neural pathway, when I meet you in 14 years later, are you going to be willing to say, I don't know, I've, I've really been reflecting on how does that work? No, more than likely, you're going to make it up. You're going to dodge it. You're going to find some way to leave you intact, right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, it makes me think, um, easy for us to say, you need an environment that's around <laughs> development and growth and people and all of that stuff. And I'm not going to ask you to, to put yourselves in the shoes of a Jamie Dimon or somebody else in a 500,000 employees. But Shannon, if a leader just pulled you aside and said, okay, so what do you think are the first few things I could do if I just want to get started? What would you say to them? Well, I think it goes back, number one, to one of the things you said earlier, which is to do the inner work yourself. Um, work on your emotional intelligence, work on your self-awareness, practice mindfulness, understand who you are and how you are when you're leading. Okay. And um, you might need a therapist for some of that. That's okay. You might need someone like that. Yep. Find out all the ways that you knowingly or unknowingly do harm as a leader and then work to unravel those behaviors. And and it's not going to happen all at once, right? Like you can think about the most egregious things or the things maybe you're getting feedback on some areas that need to be, start with those, right? right. And, and you know, I hate to use this euphemism because it's so overused, but, you know, you're going to peel back the onion. There are things that um, I've been committed to doing um, that internal work and mindfulness for years now, and it has positively impacted my leadership like nothing else. And to this day, I will realize something and go, oh, there's something else I got to start working on. I need to explore where kind of what you said, where did this come from? Really interrogate how, why do I believe this? Um, what is a belief that's aligned with my values and who I want to be and how I want to show up? Like asking those kinds of questions and then intentionally rebuilding those neural pathways. Like that is something that every leader um, really needs to do if they want to foster that environment. The second thing is then, of course, change your behavior. Like as you learn, you know, we've heard the phrase over and over again, like know better, do better. Right, so right. Do, do that. Like I'm, I'm not trying to oversimplify something, but it really can be that simple. And the doing better is a practice. We want to always think about it as a practice. Um, when you practice, you make mistakes. Mm. You know, there's this insidious disease that many people have of perfectionism. Um, and I'm, I'm recovering from perfectionism. Um, and as you start changing your behavior, I have found that it loosely follows a general pattern. At first, you just have increased awareness and you still have the bad behavior, but you're aware of it. And you're like, oh, shoot, I just did that again. I can't believe I said it like that. I need to go back and, and repair that, hopefully. Like, eventually we see it start happening, but we don't stop it. Like we, it's coming on. Um, we're about to say the thing or do the thing, but we, we still didn't stop ourselves from doing the thing, but we are aware much sooner. Then we're aware in the moment. And when we're aware in the moment, we may or may not do the thing, but if we do, we correct it in the moment. We go, wait a second. I take all of that back. I've just, I realize that this is not the direction I want to go. Eventually, we notice afterwards that we didn't do the old behavior anymore. And we look back and we're like, whoa, I handled that totally different. So we have to, I think part of the changing your behavior is an acceptance that it's not just like you just turn on a dime and now you're different. It's practicing a new way and then realizing that sometimes you do it like intermittently and then eventually it becomes a part of who you are. It's, it's just practice. When I first started um, lifting weights, right? I didn't do one bicep curl and, and I'm, I don't have huge muscles, but my point is like, I didn't do one bicep curl and then boom, I had this muscle, right? Right. It takes time and practice. There are workouts that I missed. There are workouts that I didn't do as well. Just like anything else, this is a muscle that we can develop. And then we uncover new muscles that need to be strengthened in this space. And then the next step is once you get to a certain degree of, um, of competency, around whatever area you've been working on, you are in a position to help others then like pay it forward, help others develop in that way. My caution is, especially when it comes to like um, 
it could have to do with belonging, but any other kind of DEI work, especially yeah. if you're a white person, to always maintain the attitude of not being the one that's like now looking down on other white folks that aren't as far along as you are, right? Because that's not helpful. Like, like you, you look at it in terms of we're all in this together and we're trying to grow and I want to partner with you in this. And if you, you maintain that humility around the thing that you didn't know that now, you know, yes. you know, you're not better than anyone else, right? You're still point. a part of the system. And yeah. so, um, but you, but the, the main call out here is share it with others and help others develop. It's just very simple. Self do the thing yourself, then help others do the thing. Um, whatever it is that that's the thing that I think organizations leaders can do to really foster an environment around personal professional growth, because if it's safe for me as a leader to say to my team, I don't know, I'll get back to you on that and to not have all the answers. They are going to inherently start to realize that, oh, it's safe for me to not have all the answers too. Yeah. And Shannon, um, you, you use the analogy of weightlifting and it really struck me, it, what I think sometimes can happen is that leaders can think that there is an arrival point, that there's yes. a place where, okay, I did that and now I'm good. And I have to tell you, and I know you know this, you got to do it every day. Yeah. We are a consistent, ongoing work in progress. Now, the beautiful part about it is, as you continue to work, the results are always knocking on the door to come in. You do some more. Knock, knock, I want to come in now. Knock, knock, I want to come in now. We do that. The danger is if you stop, the door goes silent. And as we know with muscle, there's this thing called atrophy. And as time moves on, as we get older, we begin that loss process. It's part of the human experience of being a human being. But the cool part is, that doesn't happen so much for those that consistently day in and day out are lifting that muscle, right? Lifting that weight to build that muscle. And, and when I think about how awkward it feels when you, I, I meant to say the right thing, but I didn't say the right thing. I knew not to say that, but then I did. And oh, I got to start over. As frustrating as that can be, as painful as it can be, I'm here to encourage you because what happens when we lift weight? We're tearing muscle. Yeah. It's 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 a form of proverbial violence against your muscles. But you know what happens? The next day, with the diet and all the other things, it starts to build as it repairs. And I think there's a great opportunity for leaders. I think there's also this great opportunity for the leader to be vulnerable. Mm -hmm. I don't know what you think about this, Shannon, but why couldn't you say, hey, look, team. I've really discovered there's some areas where I want to work on and I'm going to get better at. And along the way, I'm probably going to make some mistakes. I'm going to trip and fall. I'm not going to do anything that's going to cross a line. But if I fail at it, I just need you to know that. And hopefully you'll cut me some slack. Wow. Vulnerability and humility together, right? Um, I just, yeah, that, that, that's awesome. All right. So Shannon. I want to ask you, what are you excited about these days? What's going on in your world? And as, as a guest at the Spirit of, on the Spirit of EQ podcast, we always give you latitude to go wherever you like, but what's exciting you right now? Well, um, I'm going to mention a couple of programs that we have that we're getting ready to recruit for for 2024 because they directly relate to emotional intelligence. Um, we actually partner with Spirit of EQ on these programs. So um, it's of particular interest to um, your audience, I'm sure. Um, but there's something even newer than that that I want to talk about. But first of all, um, I want to briefly mention we have two programs that are long-term cohort programs. Uh, Next Gen, which is for those early managers. As you can tell, I'm very passionate about early manager training because I didn't have any and I really suffered for a long time. And it's um Interestingly enough, my first leadership position, I was 28 years old oh, and, wow. okay. and I felt completely unprepared for that. Um, and so I created NextGen back in 2015 to really address the, um, the social, emotional and functional leadership uh, needs of early managers. So 
the folks who are best um, positioned for the next gen program have zero to five years experience in management. And when I say zero, I mean you want to be a manager soon, right. but you're not yet. Um, it really wouldn't be appropriate for folks that just have a desire to be um, individual contributors, which there's nothing wrong with that. Um, it's just that a lot of what NextGen talks about is contextualized for um, people who are managing others. Um, NextGen is very heavy on like the beginning steps of emotional intelligence. How do I create more awareness around my EQ? Um, how am I perceived by others? What's it feel like to be on the other side of me? And then how do I use that to inform um, the goals that I want to work on and how I want to show up? Like, how do I choose who I want to be as a leader um, with this information and, and opportunities to practice around that? NextGen is also heavy around servant leadership and situational leadership, which are actually very much related. And we talk a lot about um, in that program about um, a lot of what we've said today, Eric, which is how do I actually develop a team? How do I manage performance? And how do I do it in a way that maintains positive, healthy relationships in the workplace? Because some people have this idea that, well, holding people accountable means I'm in conflict with them or I have to be mean. We have a lot of weird mixed up ideas around leadership that we hope to kind of dispel and give a different um a different framework for in next gen to really help these early uh, managers feel confident um, yeah. and competent in their new roles as managers. That's a 10 month program that starts in January and we start recruiting for that program middle to late July. Um, then exec gen, which um, is kind of, you think of a, a bookend, it's really designed for folks that have 10 or 15 years experience managing others or more. And they want to get ready for their first senior leader role. So maybe you've been a manager for 10 years um, and maybe you want to move up to like a director or a VP level or something like that. And so would that be like a leader of a leader type thing? Yes. So a leader okay. of a leader who wants to go to another level. So that next level might be a leader of a leader of leaders, right? So like a director, an SVP might have multiple leaders under uh, that report to them. Mm -hmm. And so um, ExecGen helps folks with that. So there is emotional intelligence and servant leadership baked into ExecGen, but it's totally different than NextGen because now what we're doing is helping people understand, for example, what role do emotions play um, and culture building on our teams in the environment that we create. We know we're not responsible for other people's emotions, but we also need to understand as leaders that have power and influence over people that the way we show up has an effect on a culture in a group. And we are responsible for the impact of the way that we show up. And we, and so ExecGen helps create a very, um, a very big awareness around those types of things. We also talk about cultural competency in ExecGen, succession planning, all kinds of stuff. That's a six-month program, and that starts in February of 2024. The thing I'm really excited about, um, we have three long-term programs. I've mentioned two of them that are between six and 10 months each, and then we have a program for high school students. Those are our four big programs. We've had a lot of requests in recent years for ways to engage with our training that's short-term, less expensive, et cetera. Right. And so now we are unveiling um, our workshops. Uh, we don't yet have a, a sexy name for them yet. Right now, I'm just calling them workshops. Right. Uh, sure. that soon. Um, it's already on our uh, website and under programs, you'll see, and then you can find all the workshops. These yeah. are basically short-term engagements uh, that we can come in and privately hold like at uh, your place of business where we can do a training on servant leadership. We can do a training on DEI, a training on management, um, on a management model, et cetera, et cetera. And you can read all about it on our website, which is leadershipcolumbus.org. Go to which the program. We will make sure to have that in the show notes as well. Thank you. Um, yep. If you go to the program tab and it, uh, what will drop down will be workshops and you'll see we have pricing and everything already on there. So you don't have to guess. And then um, there's a response form if you want to ex um, express interest and then we'll contact you. And so these are, um, again, privately held workshops that we can really customize for your group size, time commitments, et cetera. And um, they're going to be less, ex you can get more people trained for the money um, compared to like a cohort program that's thousands of dollars per person. Workshops are more like hundreds of dollars per person. So you can get a lot more people trained. Yeah. And you can specify like the topic that you need. One of the things, Shannon, that uh, I'm honored as it relates to Spirit of EQ, the podcast anyway, is that we have an audience that's very far reaching. 
Um, and I'm going to go out on a limb and it's a very long limb, I guess, because <laughs> I, I know how you're going to respond. Even if somebody who is not in the United States or is maybe on the other side of uh, where we're at uh, on the West Coast or what have you, you cool with them reaching out to you just to pick your brain? And who knows, maybe you could create a virtual workshop for somebody who is in California. Actually, or- yeah. If you look at the sheet, we specifically mentioned the ones that are available virtually. Ah, and, um, I figured and, you would. <laughs> yeah. And so we have hybrid also. What hybrid means is there's some learning on your own, like on a portal, right. um, and then a virtual live facilitator check-in. But you could be you could be in Australia and do that. Um, right. So it, we specify, and almost all of them have a virtual option. So yeah. I figured, tons, I figured as much, tons yeah. of flexibility. Yep. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. Well, I, I've said it before, Shannon, and uh, you're not the uh, you're not certainly going to be the last. But when we run out of time on our podcast, it always prompts us to go. Okay, would you be willing to come back and do another uh, another episode with us? Which hopefully you will. Um, because uh, this has been a great conversation. You really stimulated my thought around this, specifically our dialogue around belonging, because um, it is very, um, it, there's only so much time and I get that, but it's it's such a powerful part of this organizational thing we call work, right? Um, but uh, we're definitely going to have you back. Um, everyone in the audience, there's going to be Shannon's information in the show notes, and um, we look forward to the next time that we're together. Thank you again, Shannon. I really, really appreciate you coming on the show today. My pleasure. Take care. You as well. <laughs>